I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hello again, and welcome back to the Nova Conversations podcast. This episode is incredible. I finally get a chance to sit down and talk with Jessie Panizzolo. And if you don't know Jessie, she is the founder of a blog and community called Lonely Conservationists, which she'll share her story about the inspiration that started that in the attempts to help conservationists feel not so lonely. Um, that we do have a community and we have a place that we can share our stories. And I just loved getting to talk to her. We've been friends for a while, but it was really great to sit down and have a heart-to-heart conversation for the podcast. She's also the author of How to Conserve Conservationists, which is a book that kind of blew my mind, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And then The Secret Life of Conservationists, which is a collection of stories from the blog. So definitely go check out those books check out Lonely Conservationists. It's a great resource if you're feeling burnt out as well. And I just want to offer a little mini trigger warning. We do talk about PTSD and some mental health issues in this episode, Um, but we go into so much being valued for your work as a conservationist, how to hold organizations accountable, what type of steps should we go through in order to make sure that the early career conservationists are not getting burnt out and there is more equity and diversity in our industry. There's essentially no pressure to change for some of these organizations, even NGOs or nonprofits, because conservationists are just so disposable, they can just replace them. So we talk about that and how to value yourself and be an advocate for yourself, which is so, so important. We go into parachute science and some helicopter tourism ideas, of which I disagree a little bit with Jesse, but it was really nice to have this back and forth dialogue and just goes to show how you can disagree with someone and still really support and uplift the work that they're doing. It's okay to disagree. And we talk a lot about mental health. We go into the haters and people who just say, oh, you're complaining. <sighs> yeah, it's it's so much more than just complaining because... It's not a, let's see, how should I put this? It's not an empty complaint. It is a complaint that says, hey, here's an issue I see and it's affected me, but it's also affecting the generation underneath me. And if we want things to change, here are some solutions. So complaining without a solution or an offer of a solution is empty, but Jesse offers hope and solutions to a lot of these problems. It's really great to have a talk and a dialogue about it. That's our episode. That's our interview. Again, I have a Patreon page if you'd like to support me and the work that Nova Conservation is doing or forwarding to this this episode to a friend would be great. My Patreon page is patreon.com slash Nova Conservation, one word. And I just changed the tier levels. So we have like, Our lowest tier is $3 a month, and you can be a primary producer, which is like the plants in a food chain or a food web. Uh, So 
you are the base of the food chain. It goes all the way up to the quaternary predators, the apex predators, which I think I said at $20 a month and you get a t-shirt with that. So please go check that out. And we would love to have your support if you are able to. Shout out to my two very first patrons. They are Mary Ellen and Brent. Thank you guys so much for being part of our community and for making this podcast possible. And then the final thing is you can reach out to me on the social medias, Instagram, Nova underscore conservation, Twitter, Nova underscore conserve without the E. And you can email me at novaconservationtravel at gmail.com. I'm also still looking for a podcast co-host if you want to bring a little bit more humor, light and levity to the conversation and you think you have something to offer. Let me know. If you like having these discussions and you want to join me in them, let me know. I'd love um, someone to team up with and go back and forth about all this stuff. If you know someone who you think would want to be interviewed, also please reach out. And I look forward to hearing from you. But that's enough of my chit chat. Let's get on with my interview with Jesse Panazzolo. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nova Conversations. Today, I'm so excited. I have Jesse Panazzolo here. I'm like, I ha- we have so much to talk about. Let's just put it that way. So I want to dive right in. But tell us a little bit about yourself, Jesse, for people who don't know your history with conservation and the lonely conservationist community. I know you've probably shared your story a bunch of times. I could recite it for you. If you want to take a break, I could share it for you. Um, I'll fill in the gaps. How about that? Okay. that's. I love how you acknowledge that. I do feel that I have been saying the same story over and over again for three years, but it means now it just rolls off the tongue. So yeah. I can just get into it. <laughs> so you can probably tell by my accent, I'm Australian. Um, so yeah, time zones, it's fun. Um, but a bit <laughs> a bit about how um, I got to where I am is that I've always wanted to be a conservationist, like my entire life. What, my journey actually started when I was toilet training at three years old. And I couldn't go to Canada where my mom was going for a wedding, but she ended up bringing me back a stuffed toy gorilla and it changed the whole trajectory of my life because I just had this innate childhood curiosity that wanted to know everything about gorillas. And then I was finding out that they were primates and there was monkeys and apes. And by the time I was five years old, I asked my mom how I could save the orangutans because I'd learned all about their habitat destruction. And I found out that she actually didn't know the answer to that question. And I realized that adults, in fact, don't know everything. So it set me on the trajectory of the rest of my life to find out how I could save the orangutans. So I basically had blinkers on working towards that my entire life. I went to an agricultural school. I did my undergraduate in biodiversity and conservation. And every uh, like Christmas break, the big lot of uh, holidays, I would travel overseas to get experience in tropical countries because in Australia, there's no monkeys here. So I started off in 2014 with lemurs. And then eventually in 2016, um, I ended up doing my honours degree in the Indonesian rainforest with orangutans and I was working on their conservation with the top orangutan conservationists basically in the world. And then I was in my restoration site looking around and I saw the women in the nurseries and they were planting seedlings with the children in the village and they were sharing the knowledge and making sure that there was this generational change of 
knowledge and culture. And I saw their husbands looking after the plantations that were already established. And I just looked at myself and I was like, if I really truly care about long-term conservation of these rainforests, then I don't belong here. So I went back to Australia and I tried to find any conservation job I could, but it was hard because my whole life from three years old was focused on this one goal of orangutan conservation. And then I had to start my life again, basically at 24. So I tried everything from koala conservation, um, sustainable tourism. Uh, I was volunteering with a lot of different people, just trying to find my footing. And in 2019, I moved to Melbourne for my partner's work and I decided there's a lot of cool big NGOs here. I'm going to choose one. I'm going to volunteer as much as I can until they employ me. And basically, I worked every day volunteering as like a skilled volunteer, eight hours a day for six months. And I was doing complex report writing, data analysis, and the paid staff were asking me for advice. And it got to the point where I found out from someone that the work I was doing was having funding implications for the NGO, and yet they still wouldn't hire me. So I kind of had an intervention by my friend who said this particular NGO would never hire me as long as I was working for free. So after that, I never showed up again. I felt like I had been the most dedicated person ever in conservation, like from the time I was three, I didn't care about boys, I didn't care about celebrities, like every ounce of my energy was focused on my career. So if I couldn't crack it in the conservation industry, then who could? So at that time, I'd only ever heard of the glorification of conservation from David Attenborough and amazing Instagram posts and all that kind of stuff. I had no idea if anybody else was finding it as hard as I was. So as a last hurrah before I quit the industry forever, I got up, I got online and I told my story and I never expected that so many other people had a story to share too. So on that day, I called my blog Lonely Conservationist because I felt like the loneliest conservationist in the world. But three years later, there's 6,000 of us, so I'm not so lonely anymore. And it seems to be a problem that is not just limited to me. So yeah, that's my background. <laughs> you set the course of action for all of us to share our stories and our voices to be heard. I mean, you really did, like you said it in a, a podcast episode, you started this ripple effect and now we can come to the table and have these discussions and you open that door. So thank you for doing that. No thank worries. You. It was a total fluke and an accident, but I'm happy I did it. <laughs> well, I, I want to go back to Indonesia because I think that's an interesting thing where your brain as, as this, um, and my, I, I think I function this way too. Our brains want to help and you wanted to help orangutans and the culture and the, forest and the community. So you want, you knew and you recognize that, hey, I don't want to do this parachute science. I'm not into that. I want to do something better, deeper and have more meaning and leave the cultural appropriation to the people who know that culture best. And I applaud that. But I'm also wondering how you feel about people who are doing research in Indonesia currently. Like, do you, do you regret that decision to change course? or no? <laughs> it was the best decision of my life. Um, a lot of people over there, there's a lot of drama in Indonesian conservation, which I don't have enough time or like the capacity to go into. But the there's palm all, <laughs> the palm oil, yeah, like the orangutan palm oil space yeah. is, um, yeah, it's challenging work. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of organizations that are 
seemingly going towards the same goal, but they're all competing for resources. So I just feel like this is another facet of learning conservationists that is really important is bringing people together so we can share resources, share information, because it was as much as well as there was, I love the forest. It was the best place ever. Like it's my happy place. There was gibbons and um, elephants and orangutans and macaques. It was amazing. But I think there was a lot of unhappy people there as well because of all the politics of the NGO world. And um, there's a lot of Westerners working in that space and that have chosen to live their life there and marry locals. And actually, like, it's not helicopter tourism or parachute science. They are living there and dedicating their lives to it. Right. But I, for what I wanted with my future, I didn't see a sustainable trajectory trajectory of me living there. It's hard as a white woman to live in a Muslim country. And mm -hmm. I had kids lighting fires on my porch. I was living in fear every day when I was living with Todd because I could get arrested for living with him unmarried. So we had to go into the house at different times of the day. We, I was always on edge. And there was a lot of components of living that lifestyle that didn't, that just, it didn't feel right for me. So. I think now I am so happy that I am contributing to Australian conservation and that's something that I can do and I can pass on and stay within my own culture because I think if you are going to dedicate all of your time and energy, like if I was willing to basically become Indonesian and put in the effort to stay there and to make my effort sustainable, I would really have to commit to that so I don't regret coming home. Right. Yeah, that's a big decision to throw all of your conservation eggs in one basket and just go to a place or go to a culture and be a part of that. And people have done it and um, for better or worse, I mean, that's a whole nother discussion, but um, I think, yes, I am also getting around to the point of understanding and appreciating the culture and history that I have here, where I was born and raised and giving to that instead of always searching for the next shiny thing and traveling, although there is a really good benefit to traveling, but it's just, you have to travel in the right way. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that too, because I have a lot of questions for you. <laughs> um, so yeah, you were talking about Indonesia and how you actually were diagnosed with PTSD from your experience there. Can you talk about that and the mental health and how you're balancing all that? Yeah, so I didn't actually realize that I was struggling with PTSD until 2020, last year, when I was writing my book, um, and I kind of uncovered, so I wrote How to Conserve Conservationists about how we should look after the people who are trying to protect our natural spaces, yes, and throughout, right, right here. <laughs> yeah, get the book, everyone go buy that book, <laughs> um, so basically, uncovering the mental health chapter of that book really made me look at things through a lens that I'd never looked at them before and also um, some people had submitted me blogs and they didn't say in their blogs but they said to me personally that they were suffering with PTSD and from reading their blogs I could tell that I really related to their exact situation but I'd never I always thought PTSD was something that war veterans had right. and <laughs> I kind of maybe had imposter syndrome they're like I'm not a war veteran I haven't I thought that I couldn't have been through anything that bad to have warranted getting mm -hmm. PTSD. But really recently I've realized um, the impacts of how conservationists are glorified and how much that 
impacts me mentally. So for instance, when I was in Indonesia, I was caught in an illegal snake trap and I got snared and my t- uh, my left tendon in my ankle snapped. And I wasn't able to get that treated. So I wasn't able to go to a hospital. I was in the forest. Mm. And so I have just been living with this bad ankle for five years. And I, so <laughs> I haven't been able to afford medical help for that until now. I got a job um, that pays me enough to live basically three months ago. And I can finally address these issues that I was dealing with back then. But the problem is because it's not common to get trapped in an illegal snare, having to explain my story because that's medical information. I have my physio telling me like, whoa, I'm going to share this. Like my client got snared in it, like Indonesian forest. And mm-hmm. I was in a podcast the other day and they released a soundbite about how I was uh, being chased through a forest by a tiger. Mm-hmm. And that was a time I almost died. And that was being glorified for clickbait. Yeah. And I, the way my mental illness works is I can't, like articulate how I feel at the time so I can't say that that's not okay to glorify um, my trauma and my near-death experience like that and by the time it comes up by the time like they've already posted it and it's been too long and it feels too awkward for me to address it. Quick note here after recording this podcast episode Jesse did feel inspired to reach out to that podcast and let her know how she felt and just be honest with them And thankfully, they were extremely understanding and both parties apologized and removed any triggering content. So again, this is what can happen when we have open dialogue and respect each other and our own learning curves and just communicate openly. Okay, so back to the episode. So I think like how people glorify my near-death experiences and my life makes it hard to just be treated as a person. It's always like you must look back fondly on this or "This this is such a crazy experience. But I was now I have like five years worth of chronic ankle problems. I could have died through all these experiences. Like that's not something to glorify. And I think that's something we should stop glorifying because it makes me not feel like a person. Like if you're glorifying how I almost died or like medical issues, it makes me feel like you don't care about me as a person. Like if I died, that would have just been a really cool story. And it kind of makes me resonate to victims of like, Uh, true crime where people are just sipping wine and listening to the podcast about how people were murdered and they don't really consider the life of the victim and how that impacted them and their family so it kind of feels like people are just glorifying these tragic things that are happening and so it's only now that I can recognize that and like recognize how when I came back and I wasn't okay why that was the case but I was just looking around at everyone thinking like, oh, they're so normal. Uh, like they, Their problems are probably worse than mine. Like I shouldn't go seek help because like I just I've been living my dreams in the Indonesian forest. I've been like doing what I wanted to do since I was five. Like if I feel weird, I probably just need to readjust. But those feelings lingered with me ever since. So I think all the the culmination of the feelings of living under stress of being um, worried I was going to get arrested every day, uh, being snared and having an ankle ankle injury, um, being chased by orangutans and like having near-death experiences. Like all these stresses culminate into something that I just left as something that impacted me. And I never thought to get help for that because of the stigmas. Um, so now it's taken me like four or five years later 
I'm just only now taking the time to deal with it. So I just, if anybody thinks they might have PTSD, is not just for war veterans. It's actually very common in conservationists. Um, and these are, yeah, just a few reasons why you may be experiencing it. So I um, thank you for sharing that. I should have given a trigger warning up at the top and I'll <laughs> that at the beginning that we are talking about mental health and some serious issues. Um, that That is very true. And it's it's becoming more and more common to acknowledge and recognize trauma. Um, it's interesting as you were talking, I mean, I ha I have, I almost feel like I have an opposite story where I love the glorification of the field work. <laughs> like I, I thrive in that. And I love telling my stories of how I'm so tough. And that's another, you know, I, I just thought that's how the field is. Like the tougher you are, the more you can hack it, then the more you're gonna get the jobs and do, do the things. But as I was reading your book and you brought that up for the first time, I was like, oh, yeah, I, we cannot promote this idea that people just, it's okay to almost lose your life over things. This is not healthy. This is not right. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm glad people have been like putting that on the blog. By the way, I didn't even mention this at the top, but Lonely Conservation is a blog that's been going on for now. It's been three years. Three years, yeah. So, um, yeah, I... I feel the stress and the depression when I'm at home and I'm not doing something engaging or fun or, you know, I'm just sitting around, like I just put my kid to bed and I'm like, hey, you know, at the computer all the time. I need that energy, that excitement, that change of pace, change of scenery. Um, but I also don't want to glorify it because it does cause these systemic problems that you're talking mm -hmm. about. I think that's a healthy way of doing it because I think a lot of conservationists are saying we get angsty inside and we just want to be making change and doing something where we feel fulfilled but I think a lot of it is we're trained to feel um, like we want to glorify our situation because maybe that's all we have is we never are valued for our work but when we tell these over overly glorified stories people finally respect us the awe and like whoa you did that and I think there must be a middle ground of like not being okay with glorifying our own trauma for the amusement of other people, but having like a healthy relationship with being in the field and doing risk assessments and making sure we're safe. And like any other, if you're on a construction site, there would be a safety warden and that would make sure that you're able to do the construction, but stay safe while you're doing that. So I think that there has to be a, a fine line with enjoying your time in the field, but making sure you're looking after yourself and everyone has your safety in their best interest as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of these jobs, I mean, you don't get any health safety training or hazardous pay or any insurance to cover the very hazardous work conditions that you can be part of. So that's pretty awful. Actually, that was the beginning of my TED talk. Um, I, said, I said something along the lines of like, what if I told you there is a job where no one gets paid and you're working these horrible, inhospitable conditions on the planet, it's very unlikely that you'll ever make above six figures, even if you're the most successful person in this industry. It's more competitive than acting, modeling, you know, fashion, et cetera, et cetera. And it leads to severe mental health problems and financial strain because of all of these built up problems. And I'm like, would you take this job? Oh, everyone was like, no. And I was like, what if 
I told you that this job is essential for life on our planet. And we as conservationists, um, I'm talking specifically about career conservationists, are not getting paid to do the work that needs to be done because we live in a capitalistic society and it's a huge systemic problem. So you, like, again, I said, you open the door to talk about these things and I'm like going with the flow. I love, this is what I'm really interested in talking about is how do we change this, this system a little bit and I can't change it all. You can't change it all. You acknowledge that too. Like <laughs> we want to change it all, but we can't, we're one, well, one people, but communities can and voices can. And when we bond together, we can make a difference. So, um, getting, getting to talk to the nonprofits, the organizations, the research institutions, getting their ear to the ground and saying, Hey, listen, we're not putting up with this anymore. We're not going to tolerate this. And here's why, um, is so important. So, Talk about that. Like, how do we hold organizations accountable? Um, you, your next step, I think, still is to get a master's, possibly. No. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I got accepted into a master's program at the start of the year, okay. and I rejected it on the premise that uh, COVID meant that I couldn't get funding to do the master's program. And the more I thought about it, also the more I thought that academic academia is not really suited for me like I get really frustrated at the the egos and the elitism and kind of the issues with academia um so (laughs) I tried a lot of things at the start this year I rejected the masters I started a TAFE course in assessment um like training and assessment and then I gave that up as well um but then I got a job in Bushkindi and then that then we kept going oh Bushkindi is a job with bush kindy, like kindergarten in the bush. So you take your group of kids out and you're building cubbies and lighting fires and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And then like recently I got the job that's able to pay my medical bills and my rent. So I've done a lot this year, just trying different things. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. holding NGOs accountable is hard because I, in all of my books have never called anybody out by name because there's, always that fear that something could happen to you (laughs) and I don't know like I don't know if anybody's ever mentioned that someplace treats you bad and anything has happened to them but I think it's because conservationists really like having a job and it's rare that we get a job so when we're in a job we keep it to the very end which means most people withstand a lot of manipulation abuse exploitation all that kind of stuff so when they leave they're usually right at the end of their tether And this reminds me of a blog um, by a conservationist who remained anonymous about her job um, at a sea turtle organization that basically made her be a janitor, clean the toilets, like do all the um, like cleaning and the um, like the janitor work. And she never got to never got to go see the turtle hatching until at the end she kind of snuck out and did it because she just had been there so long and she was so frustrated and she just needed to be a part of that. And the um, expectation for that job, like her career, her title was something along the lines of biologist. I'm probably messing this up, but it wasn't, the job description did not say janitor cleaning the tank. So the yeah, job no. said you're going to work with animals and you're going to interact with sea turtles and get this experience. And then when it doesn't, out like that like you're a case with the 
ecotourism kind of sustainable tourism place it it's horrible it's it's the wrong expectations marketed the career and the job is marketed the completely wrong way but sorry i interrupted your train of thought no but that's true so like she did nothing wrong (laughs) the company was totally wrong but she has waited to the very end and put herself through all of this that she doesn't have energy to fight if they do speak out, if they do try to take her down or sue her, or like if they were to take some kind of action to get in contact with her again, like even if it's an email, that is enough to be traumatic. So she remained anonymous and I have never named anybody that has wronged me in the industry because just to get an email from them would be awful. Like it would bring back so much that has happened. So all these organizations seem to just be getting away with it because we leave when we're at the last most traumatized state where we don't have any ounce of oomph left to fight anymore. So I think that's where the conservation organizations have no pressure to change. One, because there's so many of us who need jobs that there's almost like disposable conservationists. If one quits or gets fired, they can just bring in another one really easily. But luckily now I have seen in volunteerism places or like helicopter tourism, parachute tourism, I've seen a lot of people send me screenshots of Facebook comments where people were calling out the exploitation like they're not paying you and look how much work's involved. Like this is ridiculous. And a lot of people are shutting these places down in the comments before people have a chance to apply. So I think that's the way conservationists are approaching this now is to kind of say, hey, this might not be the opportunity you think it is based on what the opportunity looks like rather than waiting to have experienced it and to get burnt out by it and then try to shut that place down afterwards. So I think that's what I've seen happen. Yeah, the people who have interned or volunteered are speaking up and saying, don't go here, don't do this, not okay, yeah. Um, But maybe it's the people who haven't even volunteered at that place it's people that are looking at what the opportunity is seeing all the red flags and then being like this is not what it looks like this is not a page like even though it looks like they're giving you food and accommodation this is just exploitation like you should be getting paid and respected for doing this work Mm, yeah interesting yeah I'm I um I haven't called out organizations in the podcast because I, this, my reasoning is because I, I think everyone has the capacity to change. So um, I hate cancel culture. Uh, so I, I'm just gonna try to lift up the positive and encourage where we have encouragement and where we see good things happening. And um, that was my reasoning, but I, I do know what you're talking about, like the online um, calling out organizations that are, <laughs> maybe not posting the right things and maybe not having the correct expectation. So let's talk briefly about that because I want to, because I'm curious, because I have, I have mixed feelings about this, but let's flesh it out a little bit. Can you like briefly give an example of not name the organization or just in broad strokes, an example of like one of those comments where people were calling out um, the exploitation. Yeah, so I think it's not, they're not calling out the organization, it's mainly on the job posting. So it means, I think that's kind of positive because people are saying like, we aren't accepting this kind of job. It doesn't mean we're rejecting you as a company. It's just this job we think is is not okay. So Mm -hmm. it would be like, 
come volunteer with sea turtles in Vanuatu. We want you to spend like 40 hours a week um, working with us, monitoring the turtles, like doing beach cleans, doing outreach to the community, blah, 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 blah. We don't pay you, but it costs thousands of dollars to get here. You have to pay to volunteer and we'll give you in exchange your housing and your food for free. And then the comments will be like, hey, look at the amount of work they make you do and you're paying to do that work. Don't you think that's a bit red flaggy? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think like they're not trying to take down the organizations. They're just trying to say like, for this specific job, we're not accepting that as okay anymore. So I think that is a positive way to go about it. Yes, yes, I agree. There are definitely clearly exploitative opportunities on there that people are calling out. But then there are other opportunities which are like kind of this fine line. So here's an example of one where, um, you know, I'm an American, so let's say I want to go down to Australia. I'll use Australia as an, as an example and volunteer with koalas. And I can stay for a minimum of three weeks and I don't get paid, but the schedule is flexible and it gave me food and housing and I get to interact with cool species and I get to help with conservation projects. For me, that hypothetically would be something I would be interested in because I am not getting paid, but it's not a job. It's not like I would still have autonomy, ideally, in this situation. You're not working 40 hours a week and you're not on a set schedule and the organization isn't saying, okay, now that you're here, we expect you to do eight hours a day, no weekends, no travel. Like you're there, you're volunteering a little bit, you're helping a really good cause, a koala rehab, say, and, um, you're, you're doing this interesting thing that then you can bring back. However, the kicker is that when you get that experience that you essentially paid for because you're not accumulating income, it's a very privileged, it's a privileged position. So only privileged people can be able to afford to do these things. Then you add it to a resume and then that further widens the gap of privilege in the conservation sector because you're getting preferential hiring because you have this unique, cool experience that sets you apart on your resume, but you only got that because you could, and I'm saying you, not you, but me, I only got that preferential hiring because I could travel and do these things. You know what I'm saying? I have a counter perspective. Yes, so yes, I kind of believe, like, as you heard from my story in Indonesia, yeah. If you come in casually and only do bits here and there, I don't think that's contributing to sustainable conservation efforts. I think to be a part of something that matters, you need to be building relationships, putting in the groundwork and have long-term contributions. I think also that is considering the perspective of the NGOs as well, who might not be getting a lot of funding and they need people to be reliable. They need to put in the effort. They need to build relationships and they need to have somebody that's gonna like really commit and and work hard on the project I think it's a bit different in Australia because we don't have like so there's no place that you can go and cuddle koalas that is 
bringing in tourists from other countries it's not like we breed them for tourism or anything like (laughs) Australian conservation is very I know this was just an example but I think it's worth exploring Australian conservation with koalas would either be at a small um, native wildlife sanctuary where koalas have been impacted by fires or deforestation and Mm -hmm. the rest of the conservation efforts would literally be like maybe patrols to find where they are outreach um like conservation education you'd barely be seeing the animals so Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be like if you were going to come over um you would need to spend like six months really immersing yourself in the the need of conservation the local landscape like what is your role and how are you actually going to contribute because I think the idea of flexibility in conservation I think it's it's not beneficial for the NGOs I think it's not beneficial beneficial for sustainable conservation efforts and if it's only going to be giving the rich elitist people experience then also what is the point Mm -hmm. so that's I guess my Australian perspective on that yeah 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 so counterpoint to that um it's interesting to hear you say that because I mean I agree I know what you're saying um but these people like me who now I don't want to add that experience to a resume. I would just do that because I just want a cool koala experience um, because that, that's that's something that sounds interesting and people value. That's the only way we can get people to value nature is by having them experience it. And I could then bring funds and capital to this nonprofit. That's the contribution. It's not necessarily that I am going for three weeks and making this great conservation contribution. The thing is, I get a cool experience in exchange. I'm giving them money or help potentially, but that's kind of dicey too. Ideally, funds to a good organization, and then they can use those funds to promote more sustainable conservation efforts. So this is this is more tourism, ecotourism, not... Mm-hmm job building, resume building, skill building necessarily that I'm, uh, I'm thinking might have to be a little bit of a switch that we go to. Um, because if we can target people with more disposable income, we can redistribute that wealth because there's so much money out there and people mm-hmm. want to do cool things with koalas and, um, and sea turtles and blah, blah, blah. But right now the burden, the onus is falling on the early career conservationists to provide this money, this funding to um, do the internships and the work, pay to work things. And I think it's that like we can, we can kind of shift it around to bring more funds to conservation and bring in people who just want to travel for a week. They can't travel for six months. It's not feasible for someone who has six, six kids, two kids, Lord, no, I don't have six kids um, (laughs) to do a six month contribution, but I can contribute by giving my money and getting a cool experience in return. So what would actually work here then is if you just went on a holiday and spend your tourist money uh, giving, like just buying things and participating in the, all the townships that were devastated by the fires, because the quicker that they can rebuild, the more effort they can put into conservation, the more the koalas have their habitat And I think koalas, you can walk around here, see them for free. You don't, if you want to, you can go do that in any leisure time that you want. 
give donations to the organizations that are on the ground, putting in the resources, putting in the right. effort to right. conserve their habitat. Politically, koalas are very, um, like, I think they're in the hands of the New South Wales government um, and other states' governments too, because they're deciding to tear down the forest or not. So um, I think the best thing, I noticed this in uh, Madagascar too, right? So people come over and they notice that 90% of the forest is gone. It's, it's brown, it's decimated. The only pockets left are used for tourism. And because people care about these pockets because they're getting paid to guide tours right. in there. So to go on just a tour in a forest means you're paying the guides, you're employing locals, you're preserving this pocket of forest from like being torn down for agriculture. It means you're contributing to local education, local incomes, local conservation. You don't have to dedicate any of your time to working at all. You can go have those experiences with the animals you love in their natural environment in a totally conservation safe way and be doing more for conservation than you ever would if you were to volunteer at a conservation organization. So I think that applies to the koalas. I think that applies to lemurs in Madagascar. I think what you're saying, people just need to support local ethical tour companies rather than do volunteer volunteerism for conservation organizations. Well, I think there can be both. I mean... Yeah, I want people to support local and ethical ecotourism. Um, but I'm trying to, again, playing devil's advocate, I'm trying to like promote trips that are just a little bit deeper. Like you even said, I have a quote, um, like what's your favorite, someone asked what's your favorite thing about conservation? You get to go to the coolest places in the world, but not as a tourist. You get to see behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what people want too. And I mean, not like you can't do that for everyone because then, then it's not behind the scenes anymore. But if you can help people get in touch with researchers, and I'm, I know Earthwatch has a model, um, Biosphere Expedition has models, but if you can really target local NGOs that are doing cool collaborative work that don't get that exposure and bring people out and see that work that they're doing and have a hands-on experience, not playing with animals, but in a safe, sustainable, like bird banding or, you know, camera trap where you're not working, but you're living the life of a biologist and seeing what we go through. So you, A, a regular person could um, understand, oh, wow, this is actually really difficult. And this is why I need to put my money into this organization because it takes this amount of equipment and this amount of technology and time and you have to hike and you have to do all those things. So you're not working, you're just experiencing the life of a biologist. And then I just think someone like me who I'm using myself as like this marketing model, but like, I just would love to connect with other biologists in other places. I just want to do it. I just want to see what their work is. I don't want to necessarily work and participate. I don't have to do that. I could, and I'd be willing to, but I'm more willing to like give money to help them and just see what they're doing and experience biology on the ground. And that's, that's when I would say you need to build relationships with biologists and then just go out with them and they can show you the ropes because I feel like this is my personal opinion that yeah. unless you're learning the culture, 
learning a bit of the language, you're there for enough time. You can't be you can't be contributing to sustainable conservation for the environment, for the NGO, or I guess like your place in there is not going to be meaningful if it's for a short in and out time. So I feel like there needs to be, you know how there's meetup groups where people go hiking, like meetup groups for um, biologists. If you want a taste of their life, but you don't want to commit to working, I feel like that's where um, like in Lonely Conservationist, for instance, how there's so many in America. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to be like, hey, American Lonely Conservationist, like who wants to show me what you're doing? Um, and I'll make a donation to the organization that you're working at. That mm-hmm. would be so much better than just saying like, hey, NGO, like, can I come and visit? Because then they have to spend their time, their resources, their money um, out of the long term projects, facilitating, oh. facilitating people who just want to come in and have a look. Right, 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 right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I'm like, okay, so two thoughts on that. First, when <laughs> the database that I tried to um, put together, I was thinking it would be part of that would have the meetup aspect of where we could meet other biologists and do that kind of hands on the ground. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult for me to focus on one thing. And in the end, a database is very expensive and it didn't have all the capabilities that I wanted it to have, just got really complicated, unfortunately. Um, I might circle back to it, but I need the funds. So, and yeah, that's my, I mean, the other thing is like going to a nonprofit and saying, hey, I wanna I wanna sneak in on your work. I get that, like the nonprofit would be like, uh, we don't have the time, resources, energy, money. So that's where, like, that's where Nova would come in and would coordinate with nonprofits that are already doing this and plan out the itinerary and lead the group. And it wouldn't take any minimal burden off of the nonprofit doing the work. This is my idea. And they get the benefit of the extra funds and the exposure going back to their organization. Yeah, if, if you could make that work, it would be more of like a tour, like a tourism, yeah, like peek into the eyes of the NGO. But also, I can imagine from an NGO perspective, a lot of them, they they do like to be open about what they're doing. They want the funding. They want to build relationships with donors. I imagine in some parts of conservation. So, for instance, um, rhinos. I cannot publish a paper about rhinos. Nobody can see camera trap footage of rhinos. When I saw camera trap footage of rhinos, it was never going to be shared with anyone. It was never going to be published because people will come in on helicopters and like poach the rhinos in the middle of the forest as soon as they have any evidence that they exist. So there's some instances like that where NGOs will have to be really secretive about Mm -hmm. their practices, which means that there would be a, a huge range of conservation organizations that wouldn't want tourists that aren't in the crux of the organization to come and witness what they're doing from like that kind of standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine like if you were going to set up that model, it would be a lot of like tree planting organizations, rewilding organizations um, and ones where like people could plant a tree. They could get involved a little bit, do some tokenistic weeding or like Mm -hmm. look through them, look through some camera chat photos or something. But I just imagine that model wouldn't work for a hundred percent 
of con conservation organizations because of the secrecy right. that's needed to protect the animals involved. Right, it would definitely have to be a, a certain group, but I can see it working. For example, I just went to Peru and I um, worked with Fauna Forever and I was out there seeing what they do and they bring people out um, who are usually young, early career conservationists who want to get an Amazonian perspective. And um, there's the need, there's, it's, it's, the, it's the market. Like, it's just, I get why people do this because there's people saying, hey, I wanna go to the Amazon. And then you have the NGO saying, we need money. <laughs> and it makes sense. So we're trying to just, instead of bringing the people out who will, you know, can then further their careers because they had this experience, yada, yada, um, we're just trying to shift the burden to people who actually can afford that and are willing to spend a week in the Amazon tagging along with a biologist. It's, it could be an easily integrated model for some organizations, not all. Mm -hmm. Definitely not all. I agree with that. And I just want to say, like, I am not trying to say that nobody should get conserva uh, conservation experience and experience to be a conservationist. And there's so many ways that people who aren't in privileged positions can get experience, like citizen or community science. There's a lot of like tree planting organizations and NGOs that have volunteer days that are free, especially in Australia. You can go plant trees or weed forests and then you can have like biscuits and a coffee in the middle of the day just chill um so and that's great for community great for mental health and there's so many ways that you can be a conservationist without the elitist paying heaps of money and going overseas so I when I say that I think people should like immerse themselves in the culture and spend six months somewhere I think that's my solution to um volunteerism helicopter tourism parachute tourism um, mm. or parachute volunteering but I think if you're within your culture and you are within your country there are so many opportunities to get experience around your work life um, situation and your income because citizen science as well you can do it in your bed like on a mm -hmm. laptop and there's no barriers to doing it at all um, so I just want to make it clear that I'm not trying to gatekeep conservation, conservation volunteering, I just, from my experience, think that there's ethical ways to do it for everybody. And mm -hmm. that's why I'm so like specific about the ways that I think um, work, just because I've had a lot of experience where I've seen what's happening on the ground and what I wish or what a lot of people wish would have been different. Right, and that, that's a, and your experiences are very valuable. And I am, um, I'm learning and growing and changing. And my, you know, I could listen to this in six months and be like, oh gosh, what did I say? You know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because you, as you just learn new things and you realize the consequences, you're like, oh, that could be really bad. Um, but where I am right now, um, which could change, is that I think sustainable conservation is first identifying the nonprofits that are doing the good work. So we have like a five question um, assessment that I would ask a nonprofit, which is like, how are you actively, if you're in another country, how are you actively decolonizing, like not promoting like parachute science, new colonialism and see where they're at there. Um, are you, how are you treating animals and wildlife um, ethically? Tons of questions and things to tease out there. What are you doing with your 
uh, interns, volunteers? What do they say about your organization? Do they feel exploited? Um, are they, is it a pay to work scheme or is it like the expectations were clear in the front end? So asking well, maybe that. that question should be, are you providing mental health assistance and a balanced diet? Because they're the two things that have come out of their research that conservationists mm -hmm. in those um, situations feel is completely lacking. Mental, okay, so mental health resources and a yeah. balanced Diet. If you look at Astrid's latest blog, the blog before right. my wrap up one, she did research on going to volunteer organizations in Africa and interviewing the volunteers to see what their needs were. And that was two things that stood out that resonated with me. There was no mental health assistance and there was no balanced diet and some people's food requirements weren't met. So they were just going hungry or not able to have the energy to do the work. So I think there are two simple questions you could ask that would give you the answers of like, do you care about your volunteers? Yeah, I mean, that's that's like at least food is the basic, basic necessity. Mental health is becoming more and more common. Thank goodness. Um, but food like just. Yeah, when I was in um, Madagascar, I lived off just beans and rice every single meal of my day for six months. Yeah. I felt the malnutrition in me I felt the lack of vitamins like it mm. was hard to do five walks a day on mm. just two ingredients of food mm -hmm. mm. yeah that's interesting um so yeah we had neocolonialism um treatment of animals and wildlife treatment of interns and volunteers including what are you feeding them uh <laughs> is there transparency in their finances making sure that you, know, you should be able to see nonprofits 990s um, at least in the United States it might be different and that's the other thing globally you know people get away with so much and then culture is different governments are different so that's it's a challenge that's um, the hardest part for me in a global organization or a global community is because I think the definition of conservation is very different in America and Australia and there's a lot of Australians butting heads with Americans because we don't have gator shows. We don't have people that can have tigers and lemurs as pets. Here is all native animals, native sanctuaries and wildlife conservation is mostly about preserving wild spaces. And we work hard to eradicate the introduced species that we do have and trying to restore that balance. So that's been really hard. And maybe your American listeners or listeners from other countries may think that I'm really harsh. I can hear myself from like other perspectives of sounding really negative and harsh throughout this whole interview, but I'm hyper hyper aware that the approach to conservation is dramatically different wherever you go like if you did mm -hmm. a conservation swap between an Australian park ranger and an um, African park ranger the African park ranger is probably standing by a, a rhino with a gun and in Australia they're fixing fences and doing like um, pit pitfall trapping for marsupials so it's like completely different Right. Um, and that's also something to consider globally. There's cultural differences in, uh, and there's also like practical differences in how we have to conserve our landscape because it's so different and we have different mm -hmm. things to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think you're being harsh. I think you're being very knowledgeable and you're using all, I mean, you have this amazing opportunity to take all of those stories and the blogs that people have sent you and not only put it in a book form in your own words and like what you want to change and what you would want to see changed in the conservation industry, but put together their stories and share it with the world. So 
what you're saying is valuable information. Um, it's not harsh. We need to, we need to do better. <laughs> we just need to do better. And then that was my, my fifth question that I had, which is very subjective, but it's um, like, are they actually doing effective conservation work? Um, so that's what we need to assess organizations on. But that, that was my take and my solution for a sustainable, like we, we identify these organizations that are doing the best work and then we lift them up and support them and put money to them um, okay. instead of, you know, letting the exploitation and letting the scammers get away with stuff just to make money and put it in their pocket or, or people who aren't respecting culture, mm -hmm. diversity of life or diversity of communities. That's very important too. Yeah. And that's something you can do. And I think what, if we scale it back to what the average person can do, I think it's a lot of it is common sense. Like if the more you know about conservation, I guess you can see the red flags, like why are there so many pictures on their website of people mm -hmm. standing with cubs? Why are there cubs? Are they breeding them? Do they need to be bred? Why are they breeding them? Is, if, is there an exact amount of adults according to like how many cubs there are, like do they all reach maturity? And if so, how did they, what do they do with the cub, uh, the adults that have reached maturity? And um, like, are they getting me to pay to work here? If so, what is that money going towards? And like, how long am I staying? And, and when this organization picks up and leaves, what's happening to the community that's surrounding them now? Do they get to keep the camp that's been set up? Like what infrastructure is in place to make sure this project is sustainable? So mm -hmm. I think, like we can all be logical but also if we find a community and we find other people who are in the industry swapping the stories like even if I can't publicly talk about the people who have wronged me if I am just chatting to conservationists in Australia and I'm like by the way don't work there it's bad um the boss is a sociopath that's something that like we can talk about within our circles and before that kind of worked because we're also isolated we didn't chat about it so nobody knew but now that we're all coming together and we're talking and sharing information and resources more, we can kind of have that under level of talking because conservation is a, it's a big world and a small world. So mm -hmm. I think um, you can hear about what's going on and maybe if somewhere has a bad reputation, it might not be so public that people can talk. So I think we need to stick together and help ourselves as well because not everyone is a Nova conservation. Not everyone is powerful enough to make change. Even I can't make change on my own. So by sticking together and being transparent and honest with each other and helping each other and lifting each other up, then hopefully we can guide each other in the best directions to go. Yes, I love that too. And you brought that up. Like we're, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is save the planet <laughs> and okay. help each other and protect it from total mass destruction. So let's work together to do this. Like, what the F? I don't know. I don't get the... I don't get the the yeah the gatekeeping or the uh, you're not doing it the right way or um uh, yeah and what strikes me is everyone I talk to is like you're so honest and I'm like if you think I'm honest then and like you think I'm honest enough to to mention it how dishonest is everybody else like if this honesty is something that's slapping you in the face how much is are other people not saying what needs to be said and I think like there's a, like uh, anxiety around being honest and, and anxiety mm -hmm. around telling the truth 
but like my one bit of advice is like I had no future in conservation until I was honest about what was happening to me and now I've redefined my whole career into something that I'm really passionate about and that's really fulfilling so honesty has literally changed my life and I think it's helped a lot of other people to know that they're not alone and and by admitting things and by saying what's wrong as well as what's saying as well as saying what's right like then we can work to make changes. Like if there's no problems, how can we fix anything? Mm -hmm. So if we all pretend that everything's hunky dory, then like, how do we, how do we move on and make things better? Mm. Yeah. And that, that's, there was a common theme of like these stories in the, um, yeah, it's, it tends to be young people and we're all speaking up now. Like we're saying, this is not okay. And we're standing up for ourselves. And then, I'm wondering how you react to like someone who's like, oh, well, people are just whining or um, the generally like an older demographic who's saying, well, that's what I had to do, or this is just the way it is, or that's how you get into this industry. Oh, the Goodreads comment calling me a Karen. Yeah. I see you. (laughs) Well, basically like things have been different in the past. And like when Darwin was a naturalist, like there was no such thing as like a conservationist. A lot of them were doctors or Mm -hmm. priests or something. There was only like a handful of jobs that existed. And then on the side, they were were maybe like a doctor on the boat. And then on their spare time, they were out collecting specimens and stuff. And then like, for instance, when I was growing up, in Adelaide a lot of people like had jobs and they would live and die in those jobs they would never give them up for younger generations and because there was not a lot of funding there was a finite amount of jobs so nobody can get in and even people were apprehensive about leaving because they might not be able to find anything else so maybe the older generation like had the opportunity to have those jobs but then younger people are not able to come in as well so when Mm -hmm. I hear people whinging especially old men sorry I'm not an old man I don't have the luxury of having the manly life and I know it's a luxury because when Todd was in Indonesia with me he was regarded as the most handsomest man he had all the freedoms in the world before Todd came and whenever he left I could not leave my house I walked straight from my house to the office and back again lock myself up and never go out because it was too unsafe for me when I was with him I could walk to the mall at night we can go get dinner I can do whatever I want I had all my freedoms back I have seen my freedoms be given and taken away with the presence of a man owning me. (laughs) So I understand how there might be males in the profession that may have different experiences. They might not feel scared in the field, like especially like um, people of color, LGBTQIA people, people with chronic illnesses might feel terrified to go into the field by themselves. If their Mm -hmm. boss is a white male, he might not understand the necessity of having two or more people going to the field at once for safety reasons. And I feel there is that privilege there, but also I feel like there is when people complain about gentle parenting, like, Oh, you can't just be chill with your kids. Like you, (laughs) you need to hit them. Like we did. They turned out fine. Now people are getting offended when kids are like, grandma, I don't want to be hugged. You didn't ask for my consent. And that's kind of like us speaking out as well. And they're going to be offended because they've hugged people their entire lives and nobody's ever said no because it's not culturally okay. Now it's more accepted. It's just a shock that people have to get used to. Like we're saying we're not okay with the status quo. We need things to change. People are getting mental mental illnesses. People with chronic illnesses are having a hard time getting jobs at all. You can only be successful if you meet this like niche array of criteria. criteria. And 
we pride ourselves on resilience when we shouldn't have to. We don't. We shouldn't have to endure all this stuff that we're enduring. So I think people. It's easier to say like you're complaining than for me to fix the problem. And that's what Astrid found in her research. She would be like, hey. I did all this free research for you. I found out all the problems with your organization. Here's an easy list of things you can fix. Change the meals so they cater for everyone's diets. Um, provide some mental health counseling. I can offer this for free if you want. Blah, blah, blah. Easy things to fix. They don't want to fix it because that's effort for them. <laughs> so telling someone that you're complaining is so much easier than fixing a problem. So if somebody's saying like you're complaining, you're whinging, you're moaning, they are showing their laziness and lack of empathy in in considering your feelings and opinion and mm. also wanting to make the future better for you. And that's what I have to say on that. <laughs> Obviously passionate about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're passionate about that because uh, we need change um, in all of these aspects. If people weren't passionate about it, we would just be status quo and that's no good for everyone. No good for anyone. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was my next. Yeah, that was my next question. Was the, the detractors are you just being a whiny Karen? <laughs> um, I want to make sure I'm not going over too much. You have to cut off at a certain time. It is. It's already been an hour. Um, I have a few more things I'd like to get to if you have time. But I want to. Yeah, we can do it. Okay. Okay. So the problem is we want these things to change in conservation. We are requiring more, but the the issue is there's not enough jobs. It's this basic economic problem. There's too many people who want to be in, they're disposable. There's quick turnaround because people get burnout and leave the industry altogether oftentimes. And then the jobs just get quickly replaced. Um, leads to toxic work culture. We know this and we can talk about that a little bit, but how, how can we solve that? Like, what are some ideas to solve that? How do we get more jobs? How do we get more funding? Um, that's the systemic root of the issue, right? So, mm -hmm. or maybe deeper into destroying capitalism and saying. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I've seen like bits of this. So honesty leads to people speaking out about things like the people in the comments saying like, this is not okay anymore. Then there's less people getting into those jobs and less people taking those offers. So they might think the next time we want people in our turtle organization, it's actually like now we we are losing funding because we don't have enough people to help. What if we have fewer positions, but we pay them all, have better um, right. better resources allocated to them, then they do a better job, sustainable conservation, more funding, and then you can bring more people on board. I think nothing's going to change overnight. There's not going to be a billion jobs opening. But if we are advocating for ourselves, and I know it's possible because I said I started a Bushkindi role at the start of the year. When I applied for that job, they accepted it. They offered me minimum wage. And I was like, I think with my experience, I deserve more than minimum wage. And they gave me the pay rise. And they also said later down the line during my job, we respect you more and we think you must be an amazing Bushkindi teacher because for you to advocate for yourself means wow. that you believe in yourself and therefore like we believe in your quality of work. Other, if you weren't like, if you were unsure about it, you would have just taken the minimum wage. So mm -hmm. I think I've learned that advocating for myself proves my abilities and my worth in a job. And that actually helps me more. So before when I was afraid to advocate for myself, I would, be treated bad because I wasn't treating myself 
well. I wasn't saying that like I should be worthy. So they were also thinking like she doesn't value herself that much. She's happy with minimum wage. Like let's treat her like that. I noticed that my bosses treated me way differently because I had advocated for myself right from the get-go. And now that I know that that's possible, here I am advocating for myself everywhere I go because the more Mm -hmm. people that do that, the more that sets the standard for what's acceptable in these jobs and then hopefully by individuals I think this is how we can do it (laughs) like individuals can make a change we can combat our imposter syndrome we can get better jobs better quality jobs all by advocating for ourselves so I think if there's anything you want to work on in 2022 this is the thing (laughs) it's going to change our lives so if we enough of us do it together I think it can really have a big impact that's awesome like that's incredible. That's um, really, really, really encouraging and hopeful and uh, puts a fire under my butt to be like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to get paid minimum wage anymore. I don't want to get paid $4 an hour to do this work when I have a master's degree. That's yeah, think about all the things you've endured, all your degrees, all your years of training, reading, all the things you do in your personal time, the podcast, the books, all the times you've gone on walks, you've taken that extra minute to like learn all the species in your uh, local park, like all of the things you have done in your life. You probably are an expert because they say like thousand hours of reading or something gives you a PhD, something like that. Like you are like more than an expert in your field. So stop looking at people with higher paying jobs with you and thinking that they're more important. You can be that person if you advocate for yourself and say, I should be someone with a higher paying job. I don't think I would have ever got to where I am now if I didn't have the confidence to say, like, I am worthy of this. Because in conservation, if there's like 200 people applying for the same job as you, you can only get it by putting yourself out in front of them and saying, like, I am worthy of this job. And I have my own boundaries that if you employ me, I want to be respected. And I have like, I like to interview back. So if people interview me. I like to say, like, what resources do you provide for your workers? Is there like mental health opportunities for like, is there counseling? Is there X, Y, Z? What do you do if there's a conflict? Blah, 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 blah. I like to interview back to make sure that I'm working in a place that works well for me. Then when I get the position, like now I'm in the best job of my life because I'm getting paid properly. The culture is incredible. And it's only because I have learned to advocate for what I want in a job that I've ended up here. So I can't stress that enough. Advocate for yourself. I think, yeah. And like encouraging and teaching and bringing awareness to a younger um, generation of people who want to get in this industry and saying like, don't stand up, don't stand for this anymore. Like this is Mm -hmm. kind of ridiculous. That's, that's a good, great piece of advice. Um, I I couldn't add to it. I'm trying to add to it and I'm like (laughs) stumbling over my words because it's been a long day. (laughs) I know when like, I think when I hear conservationists say like you have a job, I'm like, how did you do that? To put it in context, I just turned 29 and this is like the first job I've ever got that's been able to pay my bills and like, I'm able to live comfortably after 29 years. And that's only because I've taken advocating for myself seriously this year. So that is the thing that turned me from volunteer forever, not respected. Even after like three years of lonely conservationists, that is the thing that like flicked the switch and gave me those opportunities to be able to have a sustainable life for me, as well as for the species that I care about. Mm. 
And if you don't believe you're worth it, go read these books and just see the words, <laughs> the words you write will pop off the page and you're like, ah, smack yeah. you in the face. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> I, and so my, a little bit about my journey before we wrap up. Um, I am a, in a very privileged position where I don't have to earn an income. So all of Nova's work that I'm doing is like, I'm not getting paid at all because I don't want to charge the early career conservationists and I don't want to charge the nonprofits that are doing the best work. So I find myself stuck, like, how do I get money? Um, and that's the trap that I'm in right now is like, I want to advocate for myself and I want to earn a, an income through this work. And I want to make the most, of, but I started this journey to ask, answering the question, I want to make the most effective change for conservation. And this is kind of where it's morphed into is like starting this nonprofit that helps um, people who want to protect the planet. And actually, I'm gonna jump back. So you're, the masters that you were gonna do in the psychology masters, mm -hmm. that was like a year ago that you were gonna yeah, do? Yeah, the, the start of this year, like January this year. Oh. I rejected it, yeah. Oh, I, I must have listened to a podcast that was really old because I was like, oh cool, she's going into this. But that sounded um, really interesting to get into the psychology of how to conserve conservationists. Um, mm -hmm. And I, part of me is like, I would have been a psychologist in a different life, I think. Um, that just, it just intrigued me to think about these things. So you're in good company here because um, I love talking about this stuff. But my point is, how do I advocate for myself if I'm not getting paid, but yet this work is very necessary and do I even need to get paid? So my solution to that, because I was in the exact same predicament with Lonely Conservationist, was to get a job and to be like, if I am burning myself out, giving everything for a bunch of other people, it's kind of hypocritical for my main message to be like, we got to look after ourselves and then me be burning myself out, looking after everybody else. So my solution was after three years of trying to make it something that could be like my life's work, it couldn't for the same reasons as you. So I was like, I'm getting a job so I can look after myself and this will be a passion project on the side. And finally, like after doing that, I can like relax because I'm contributing to local conservation here. I'm getting paid enough to live. And then in my spare time, um, I only work Monday to Thursday. So all Friday, the weekends, I can dedicate to lonely conservationists or after work. And that has given me the, the best life that I've ever had. Um, mm -hmm. But I think if you're in a position that you don't have to work, I think maybe that's a pressure that you can take off yourself. Um, I think it, the only thing I can think of is like, if you know benefactors or if you build relationships with corporations who, even if they want to greenwash, like for instance, there was a, a conference a couple of years ago that was sponsored by BP Billiton and everyone was like, mm, this is a regeneration conference. But then we're like, if, if they're not putting that money towards our conferences, what are they doing with that money? So I am not opposed to okay. taking people's <laughs> money who are doing the wrong thing and you do the right thing with it because maybe like they have the money and if they're not spending it on you, who are they spending it on or what are they spending it on? Um, but I think it takes time to build those relationships and to wrangle your way into a situation where you have access to those money, to that money. Like Lonely Conservationists could never be an NGO. We're global. We're based in Australia. Becoming an NGO in Australia is like impossible. Um, really? There's so many hoops to jump through. There's people that have tried before me and told me like, 
don't bother <laughs> because it's so hard and every year they make it harder and harder and harder. So I've explored being like a, a foundation or just a business. It's it's too hard in the capacity of like what I'm working with. But if you are an NGO and you can get tax deductible donations from these organizations, that's one way to do it. And another is when you're speaking about what you want to do with Nova Conservation, it reminded me of a citizen science book I read where um, the CEO decided, well, he went on a trip to um, to the Amazon and it changed his life and he came back and his he worked in a big bank and the bank was all climate deniers and they all like didn't care about conservation. He gave them one day, a team building day out in the, their local forest and they planted trees together and it changed the whole ethos of the company. They came back, the whole mentality had changed and they just, something switched because they'd never actually connected with the ground and felt the forest and took the time to like see what was happening. So maybe if you offered team building days for these big corporations, get them out into nature, you can change the ethos of these companies while also getting the income that you need to run your other projects. So that is the best guess of how you could do it in your situation. Find the people with money and get them to appreciate nature and then give you the money to help appreciate nature and conserve it in the future. I love it. That's really cool. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> but like, yeah, you can be able to do it if you are a registered NGO. It's just that was a huge limitation to me is that I can't accept donations that are tax deductible. Like basically switching money with me is like just being a friend. <laughs> like, So I have a Patreon page and that's all fine. But that like my Patreon is basically the limitation to donations that I can accept. Right, right, right. Yeah, we're, we're exploring that option. I mean, I think I'm like 90% sure we'll end up doing a nonprofit and going that route. It's not terribly difficult in the United States. There are hoops to jump through, but it's um, manageable. So that is what we're looking at right now. It's just what are our end goals? And that's what I'm trying to think about what's going to be most effective for conservation in the long term. And maybe we can talk about that another time off, <laughs> off camera. <'cause> I'm, <laughs> I'm like, well, we got to solve this problem and then this problem. And um, I also... Also, I also have mental health issues. So I have like yeah, depression, anxiety, but I also got diagnosed with adult ADHD recently. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about the way my brain works. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Would you um, do this and then this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I just like underline some quotes. <laughs> One of them, okay. I love when you were like, I've given you the problems basically like with lonely conservationists. We know all the problems now. Now let's solve them. Like what a call to action for everyone to get involved. And I was like, yes, but then I want to solve all of them. Um, yeah. And then I hope I've started a ripple effect that allows other people to have these conversations. We talked about that. Uh, oh, and then the gatekeeping. I need you to be a nice person. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> I just need everyone to be a nice person. <laughs> I will leave mean comments. Like, there's, recently we had like a cross promotion when I uh, I published a book, um, the new book, The Secret Life of Conservationists, and it brought um, I published a blog on like we did a, a blog crossover and it brought new people to the page. There was one day with an influx of people on the blog, and I had my first two mean comments, and I was like, and oh. it hurt so much because it's not on my like I haven't wrote these blogs. It's the people in my community have poured their heart and soul out. And there was one comment, like I vet all the comments and I choose what goes up. So nobody has ever seen them. 
but there was one that was like after like the first paragraph I already don't like this person and I was like what do you mean they poured their heart and soul out about their personal experiences like who are you to judge them (laughs) it just I it blew my mind like the audacity like sometimes I think people need to sit and think like do we really need to say that like who is it benefiting like who is it helping and there's this like something that stuck with me and someone said if they can't change it in five seconds don't tell them like if they have something in their teeth and they can get it out in five seconds tell them if they have like their pants ripped and they can tie a jacket around their waist tell them if they can't fix it in five seconds don't tell them (laughs) that's kind of like what I wish for the blog like if they can't fix their entire personality to suit what you wish it was, mm-hmm. maybe that comment's not relevant. Mm-hmm. I have this theory that a lot of people are taking out the anger on. I mean, it's probably not my own individual theory, but we're so angry. Um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of Americans are angry. And even, you know, the conservationists and the more liberal people um, are angry. And we're just, we're just like infighting. And um, we're not, we shouldn't take it out on each other. We should lift each other up and support each other and help each other. Cause we're, we're taking out the anger that we have against the big corporations and the big systems that work and the political powers and capitalistic as society as a whole. Um, and this unfairness that we feel the pressure of the world collapsing literally before our eyes. We have to take that energy out somewhere and it's not productive to take it out on other people. Yeah, especially like I write in my book about my friend that started um, a zero waste Instagram and had to delete it because she got so much bullying about not being vegan. But she had leaky bowel syndrome and leaky gut syndrome. And she had all these medical issues that meant she couldn't eat legumes. So it was a huge like disadvantage of getting the protein she needed. So I hate the fact that she was discouraged from doing a good thing and promoting zero waste and sharing her journey because she couldn't be perfect according to the standards of other people online. And I think like maybe we could inspire and uplift people who aren't doing much to do one thing instead of tear down the people who are already dedicating a large portion of their life to doing the right thing. So I think the elitist gatekeeping mentality in conservation needs to go. We need to start helping each other. We need to start being more honest and authentic with each other and lifting each other up, being that community. So nobody has to be lonely in conservation anymore. (laughs) And you do that through the stories and the blog and your books and you do it so well. Um, That was actually my final thought was you have said a few times that you don't want to like be the lead, like the leader of the organization. Essentially, you don't want to be the spokesperson. I just don't want to be the face. Like, I don't want it to be like Jesse Panazzolo is the lonely conservationist. Like some people email me like, hi, the lonely conservationist. I'm like, what do you mean? That's just making me look lonely. (laughs) But I really want it to be like about the community and have their voices to be at the forefront. Like in the last book, The Secret Life of Conservationists, I just do the forward. My story is not even in there. Like I really want to give voices to the people in my community and just be the one that facilitates that. Not be like, here's my face on everything because it's all about me. (laughs) Right, yeah. And I get that. But it, like for better or for worse, you are that spokesperson and you do it so well so well so I (laughs) I take a lot of like inspiration from you so thanks for being awesome and inspiring well I (laughs) inspiring that word no but like so I I appreciate it if like 
because I see that the way that we communicate and we have helped each other out in the past that I can see like we help each other so I may have inspired you to take some action or to change something or like to present in a certain way and that's fine and that's valid but when I see some like person from my childhood who I haven't seen and they're like you're so inspirational but I'm like what have I inspired you to do as they're like (laughs) chucking a recyclable in the landfill bin and I'm like have I inspired you that's (laughs) when I don't like (laughs) that makes perfect sense that makes Mm -hmm. sense well it's so good to not be lonely (laughs) it is discussions and love talking about it love the book recommend it to everyone can't get enough of it I like I was literally reading on my Kindle and I was like highlighting every page there was something to highlight and I was going through those highlighted sections before actually can I read one you can read it it will help my own imposter syndrome because when you self-publish something and nobody tells you like that's bad don't publish it and then you're worried like I'm going to put it out in the world and everyone's going to be like that's bad why did you publish it so I love positive feedback about it (laughs) So much positive feedback. Um, this just stuck with me. A lack of funding, abusive bosses, and isolation seem to cycle through my life and like waves lapping at a big, strong cliff face. Over time, my passion and drive wore away. Like that, we can't have people losing their passion and drive for the planet because we are so passionate for it. And if that passion goes away from not getting paid <laughs> it's yeah it's very sad so there's a lot of great. people out there very uh, very conservationally qualified baristas i think <laughs> there's a lot of people out there who train their whole life to be conservationists and then just had to just do anything to sustain their life and that makes me really sad because we need these passionate people and yeah, I just hate the way that so many of them have been broken down and been taught that their their resilience has been important when it should be important for everybody else to say, like, are you okay? Like, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Opening that dialogue. And then I also really like this quote. We need to dramatically adjust social, social systems and institutions to be fair for everyone and dismantle the institutions that cannot be changed. Get it. Get it, girl. When you're reading it, I'm like, whoa, did I write that? <laughs> uh, yep. How to conserve conservationists, Panazolo, comma, Jesse. That was wow. So poignant of me. <laughs> you are inspiring. You are so inspiring. Take all the, take all the positive feedback and all the good, good vibes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Lap it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been so great talking with you. Thanks for, now it's, yeah, thanks for being on here an hour and 22 minutes. This is awesome. I could talk more, but I will cut it off here. Um, do you have any final thoughts or bits of wisdom or anything? I guess what have we talked about? Just advocate for yourself. Yeah. Advocate for yourself and then take care of people around you and be nice. <laughs> like be nice to yourself and be nice to others. I guess that's the way to sum it up. And that translates when you are I've decided to see how when I started having more self-compassion, I that translated to everyone around me. So, yes. Yeah. If you're unhappy, you're beating yourself up. That's only going to come across. And I think like the way I just spoke about my book, how like I have imposter syndrome, I think everyone's going to say something bad about it. I'm trying really hard to stop that mindset and to be like, I published this. 
I'm proud of it. I obviously believe in what I said to go the, through the effort of publishing it. So mm-hmm. I think like it is scary. I recognize that it's scary. Heaps of authors in The Secret Life of Conservationists haven't even talked about it because they're so scared. They're full of imposter syndrome. And I just want to try it and lead by example as well. And I'm trying so hard to like reduce my imposter syndrome and be proud of the things I'm putting out. But at the same time, I want to be honest with people that I'm still feeling this way so that they feel like they're not lesser for having these emotions as well. So that's also a, a fine balance. Right. That was another question I had for you. How do you, the balance of that mental health, like sharing your journey and, um, and, but also like taking care of yourself, like sharing it publicly and taking care of yourself because. Yeah, that's, it comes back to being kind to yourself. Like if this is going to hurt and it's going to be painful, don't do it. If you think it's, you feel like you want to share something and you feel like it's going to help other people, then that's how you draw the line. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. And that's how you make your decisions. Yeah. I, and it all comes back to mental health and just well-being, this, this deep feeling in your soul. This, I have um, actually been working with like a coach who helped me with my TED talk and she will tell me to check in with my body. So now like if I have to make a decision, I'm like, what does my body say? What is it saying? How do I, like, I sit with the first decision and I'm like, okay, I feel calm. Like that feels good. I feel settled. I'm not nervous pooping. It's probably fine. <laughs> nervous puking. Um, or sometimes, you know, you have that nervous energy, but you know, like it's an excitement and yep. energy that needs to get out versus like, oh, I really am dreading this second decision and everything in me is shrinking and hurting. And you're like, oh, oh, my body does provide those answers. So listening to yourself and breathing take this moment to breathe (laughs) this is laura's meditation podcast (laughs) yeah i have seriously considered starting out because meditation has been so i have a soothing voice don't i i don't want to have that invisalign in that's (laughs) this is a podcast that's soothing but not good for your dental care (laughs) (laughs) and on that note on that peaceful note it is 9.25 9.25 p.m. I don't know why I t- started turning into a British accent. That's what I think of when I think of soothing. Um, it is late for me, <laughs> for someone who didn't get sleep last night because the baby was, well, he's a two-year-old. But he, was, he usually sleeps really good, but last night, not so great. So um, I'm going to go do my self-care and rest and meditate and maybe even take a bath because I haven't showered today. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. And I will eat some lunch because I am in the other side of the world where the time is different. <laughs> yeah, and the seasons are different. It's like summer. Yeah. yeah. T-shirting it up. Mm-hmm. Summer colors. Mm-hmm. Just the way it is. <laughs> okay. It's been lovely. I will um I will say goodbye. Thank you so much for being on here. Thanks for making the time across the globe. And thank you for all you do. It's really, really Thanks valuable. for having me. It was great chatting to you. Same. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.